Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hello, Medicus listeners. It's Catherine. I'm here today with Dr. Corey Franklin, who is the Director of Medical Intensive Care at Cook County Hospital here in Chicago for 25 years. He's the author of Cook County ICU, 30 Years of Unforgettable Patients in Odd Cases, and The Doctor Will See You Now, Essays on Changing the Practice of Medicine. Before retiring, if we can even call it that, he wrote nearly 100 medical articles, chapters, abstracts, and correspondences in books and professional journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and the Hastings Center Report. In 1999, he was awarded the Shubin Weil Award by the Society of Critical Care Medicine, one of only 40 people ever honored as the national role model for the practice and teaching of intensive care medicine. Since retirement, besides teaching medical students and doing charity medical work, Dr. Franklin is an editorial board contributor to the Chicago Tribune. His many op-ed pieces, serious and occasionally satirical, range from medical issues to history, culture, the arts, sports, and human interest. His work has been published in the New York Times, the New York Post, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times, as well as being excerpted in the New York Review of Books. He's even got a book on Chicago called Chicago Flashbulbs, a quarter century of news, politics, sports, and show business. We're excited to have him here on our podcast today to talk about literature and medicine and his book, Cook County ICU, 30 Years of Unforgettable Patients in Odd Cases. Hi, Dr. Franklin. Do you want to start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your background? Hi, Catherine. Thank you for having me, by the way. Well, my background is I went to Northwestern uh, Medical School. I was in the uh, six-year honors program that recently got cut, and I graduated in the 70s. And I did my uh, internship and residency when they had internships at Cook County with a little time in critical care at Northwestern. Did my fellowship at uh, University Hospitals in Cleveland, Case Western Reserve. And then I came back and worked at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and then at Cook County. And I did that for most of my career. I also did a lot of writing at the time. I got hooked up with the Tribune and started writing for them. And they picked up a lot of my pieces. So, I mean, that's basically what it was. And I retired about 15 years ago. Uh, I, I heard your introduction, Catherine. There have been more than 40 winners since I won it. I think, I think now there are about 50, but at the time, I think there were 40 or 45. So it was a nice award to get from the leaders in critical care at the time, which was a while ago. Yeah, I think I pulled that stat from 2016 when your book originally came out. So there's at least, there's at least five more. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when did you start becoming interested in the crossover between literature, medicine, and science? Because you had mentioned you had already started writing for the Chicago Tribune. Right. Well, the interesting thing is, Catherine, it goes back to um, my high school days where, you know, I was in journalism and I actually got a scholarship to the University of Missouri, which is a very prestigious journalism school. And I also got into the Secure Med program, but this was during the height of the Vietnam War. And at the time, everybody was concerned with deferments from the Vietnam War and the six-year medical program gave you a six-year deferment. So I would be looking at the mid to late seventies before I would be eligible for the draft, which in those days was a big deal. 
And my father, mm -hmm. who was a very prestigious doctor at the time, had landed on Normandy Beach and had lost a lot of his friends. And he said, you should take the uh, six-year medical program so you're not drafted for at least six years. And if you were drafted, you would come out a medic. So it was one of those things where any job where they're shooting at is not the best job in the world. But I did continue to write, you know, at first, mostly medical stuff. And medical writing is a little dry these days. So I then branched out into some non-medical stuff. And there was a challenge writing medical things for a lay audience, which it always is. And what did you find that you wanted to convey in your writing? How did you find that voice? Well, it's, it's interesting because I mean, right now you see that writing, writing about COVID, which I write about a lot now, some of which I write with a partner who's an infectious disease expert, and we went through the AIDS epidemic together. And writing about COVID now, the key is to make things understandable, interesting, and as up-to-date as possible. So you have to know a lot of science, but you also have to know how to frame it for a lay audience, how to make it understandable. My editors at the Tribune, who were some of the best in the country, Pulitzer Prize winners and Pulitzer Prize nominees, said that the biggest problem that doctors and scientists have when they try and write like this is they get into the weeds very quickly and they're not understandable by the lay audience. So I, I sort of look at it as a challenge how to make this understandable to a lay audience. And that's super interesting because theoretically, when you're conveying that information to a patient in an office visit, you'd be like thinking of that language, but you don't get the immediate feedback. You just kind of have to have something that they hopefully wouldn't have the same amount of follow-up questions or that kind of thing as they would when you're publishing it. Exactly, and if you sit paper. in an office with a, with a doctor talking to a patient, you know, after a while, you can tell who's good at it and who's not so good at it. You know, the good ones are more relaxed. They can relate to the patient better. They use less technical terminology. They make sure the patient understands. And the ones who aren't as good are a little more stiff, frozen. And even though they may be technically very competent, a lot of times the patient walks out of there and they're not exactly clear what's going on. They do the nod and you think that it's gone through, but you don't really yeah, know. The, pa the patient doesn't want to, most patients don't want to tell you they don't understand. Occasionally there are patients who are, you know, assertive and everything like that, but a lot of the patients, so they'll walk out and they'll, they'll shake their heads. And in fact, now that I'm retired, uh, one of the things I do is a lot of friends and family will be in those situations and they'll ask me to interpret what the doctor said or what the laboratory stuff means and stuff like that. Do you ever bounce your writing off of someone to see if it makes sense or are you just kind of? Oh, all, all the time, you know, one of the things, my wife is a college counselor and so she has to read a lot of essays and she'll have me read the essays with her. And one of the things that high school students and occasionally we'll have a postgraduate student who's looking to go to med school or law school, is they think that their writing is tremendous and they don't need any editors. And what I can tell you is everybody needs an editor. No matter how good a writer you are, you need an editor. I'm lucky that the people that I work with, the Tribune, now many of them are retired, were among the best editors in the country. And I very often bounce my stuff off them. And if it's a scientific thing, especially if it's a scientific area where it's not my specialty, say anesthesia. I'll bounce it off a couple of good anesthesiologists I know and say, is it precisely accurate? And let me worry about 
you know, the lay language and the lay language. Mm -hmm. Do you find that process to be fun or is it more like a puzzle that you have to figure out? It's fun and it's challenging. I mean, you know, you, you get an idea and you say, okay, and getting the idea is by far the hardest part. And then once you have the idea, you say, how am I going to construct this? How am I going to get to a certain word limit and not over a certain word limit? And how am I going to make it understandable? And, and that, you know, it, I mean, sometimes it takes a lot of time. Sometimes you can do it in one afternoon. It, it really depends on the issue and how hard it is. Some are harder than others. Circling back to your book, why do you think you chose to write Cook County ICU in the format of anecdotes as opposed to other literary styles of writing? Well, you know, to tell your audience who are generally probably medical professionals, every patient has a story. And, you know, one of the tricks is to get that story out of the patient. Now, I work in the clinic and I work in the intensive care unit. So the stories are very often of different proportions, but everyone has a story. And some of the stories are fascinating. And some of the stories have to do with their medical condition and other stories don't have to do with their medical condition. But like in the clinic, uh, I know doctors are pressed more for time now, but back in my day, we would spend a little time with basically, tell me your story. You know, someone once wrote, tell me your story is the sexiest words in the English language. And so what you want to do is you want to get the story from the person. And Cook County just had, you know, it was like a thousand and one Arabian nights. There was always stories about all sorts of things. And from the doctors who were before me, I got plenty of stories. And then I would teach the doctors that I train, the residents and fellows and the students, you know, look for these things in a story. Look, you know, ask them what they do for a living. Ask them to do pets, uh, things like that. So you're always looking for stories and there's a million stories. Is the goal of that to be able to humanize the patient and their condition? Or is it just because as people, that's a way that we can relate to others Both. and like fill the pieces of the puzzle? I mean, stories humanize the patients. And in fact, I, I just wrote a story about, and something that's gonna be published in a couple of weeks. Uh, a friend of mine is um, the anesthesia circulator. He's the anesthesiologist who checks out what's going on in each room and who's doing the case and everything like that. And he just told me a story recently that a woman was coming in for some operation on her tone. It wasn't an extensive operation. And he was talking to her before she rolled into the room and he asked her what her profession was. And she said she was an opera singer. And so he went to the resident who was doing the case and he said to the resident, how are you doing this case? And the resident said, oh, I'm doing general, you know, ET tube general. And he said, you know, this case should be done regionally because you know, your complications of intubation with singers are far more serious than your complications of intubation with everybody else. So that was a matter of asking the right question. It humanizes a patient. It teaches us something. If you go back in history, many of your best writers were doctors. And that's basically, and I'm not going to compare myself with them, obviously, but you can look at some of your great writers who were doctors and they were fascinating people yeah because sometimes like in looking at works by physician it's kind of like they 
take care of patients, but they make themselves the center of the story. But for you, it seems like you take special interest in keeping the patients that you treated and cared for at. Yep, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is something that they don't teach in medical school much anymore. And it's something that it's, and it's really a pity that they don't teach you about the, the great writers who were physicians in the past who, you know, they weren't the subject of it. It was uh, the patient, you know, and people like uh, William Carlos Williams and Oliver Wendell Holmes and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, all these people wrote fascinating things as doctors, but they were about patients. And how did you go about, because you have over 30 years that you were working and you collected stories, not just from like a short period of time where something, one pivotal thing happened. How did you keep all of these antidotes in your head? Did you like keep a journal? Did you do other forms of reflection? I wish I could say I kept a journal and I wish I did keep a journal, but I had to keep it in my head. And the way I kept it in my head was to constantly retell the stories. So every year I'd get another group of residents and students and everything, and things would come up and I would tell them an old story. And that's how I get most of them. And in fact, in Cook County ICU, I did have a couple of stories that I didn't think of at the time that if it was today, I would put those stories in. Unfortunately, I don't have enough of them for another book, but it was constant retelling of the stories. However, if I knew then what I know now, I would have kept a journal. I was actually very busy because the type of ICU work I did and the type of things I did, I had to do keep a journal of patients all the time. So I logged just fantastic amounts of information about patients and that was technical information. But today I would have kept a journal. And how did you go about stringing all the stories that you collected through this process into a book? Well, you know, you write them out and you say which type of stories are similar, which are humorous, which are tragic, which are instructive. And then you work with your editor at the book and you say, is this a good format for organizing them? So I'm sure that somebody else might do it differently, but it was just the way I thought would be intersperse a humorous story with a serious story, that kind of thing. Yeah, that, that would make sense to me. And circling back to that concept of a story, do you think that there are aspects of your story and the stories you convey in your book that are unique to Cook County, Chicago, and the people that you cared for? Well, Cook County Hospital, you know, that's been around for over 100 years, and it's taking care of people from all over the world. It was the main hospital for immigrants from Northern Europe and Southern Europe. And it was also the main hospital for people who made the great migration from the South to the North. And at the time, it also had some of the top doctors in the country. So there was a tradition there and that tradition carried on. So when I would say a resident and a young attending, there were people who were there before me and you, you sort of learn the ethos of things. And of course, my father worked there for a while. He worked with some of the great physicians of the mid 20th century. So you learned an ethos of things and the ethos involved taking care of patients who were indigent or who were immigrants or who had language problems. 
and also at the same time respecting the history of medicine and the art of medicine. So I would say that was, I wouldn't say it's unique because I've been to other hospitals in the country where there's a similar approach, but it may be stronger at county than anywhere else. Not only did it attract a certain patient and attracted a certain provider. The case presentations and the pathology you saw were so varied that if you, if you really wanted to learn things, you really wanted to see things, that's where you would go. Cases today are much more uniform across the country and the university hospitals tend to get the rare cases these days. But in those days, it wasn't like that. And in those days, there were hospitals that were restricted, that were segregated. There were hospitals that didn't take indigent patients. And poor people have, you know, unusual diseases many oftentimes because of where they're from or what happens and things like that. And so if you really wanted to learn, you would come to county to do those things. Then when you got there, you realized, hey, the people around you are, whether they're nurses or doctors, they're like that too. And they can teach you things you might not be able to learn other places. Do you think that counties, that original charitable mission and the approach where you care for everybody will be able to stand the test of time in a profession that's increasingly having to reckon with bottom lines and more of that business side of medicine? Because you even talked about it in your book and I've seen it in some of the hospitals I've worked with having to close because taking that approach doesn't necessarily let you keep your doors open, even though it's that core of the mission of medicine? Right. Easy question. And the answer to the question, short answer to the question is no. Part of it is business. And business has always been a prominent factor. Now, one of the things that changes is that business is a more prominent factor now because hospitals are not run by religious organizations they're not run by doctors. And there are good things about that, but they're run by bottom line corporations, bottom line, you know, people who are trained MBAs to, to read the bottom line. But county specifically, there was always a political aspect to the hospital. It was always a place where the Democratic Party of Chicago had a, had a finger in the hospital. But over the last 50 years, it has become more and more a political institution. So in the early days when I was there, the politicians didn't encroach so much upon the doctors. Now the doctors are much more attuned to the politicians than they were back then. So between the business practices and the political implications of it, and the fact that the federal government now dictates very much more of medical care and you know, through electronic medical records, through payments, through things like that. Places like county are not the places they were back then, and it's too bad. And again, also in terms of seeing unusual cases or getting trained by very experienced physicians, you're going to get that more at the university hospitals now. Now, one of the things, by the way, one of the things that's interesting is the hospital staffs are getting younger and younger you know, you're going to be trained by residents and attendings who haven't been out that long. The 40, 50 year person who granted may not be up to date on the latest chemotherapy or the latest antibiotics, but had a certain style or had certain knowledge is gone. 
And that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. How did you find that your Chicago roots influenced your practice as a physician and then practicing in Chicago specifically? Well, the thing is, if you knew Chicago history, very often you could relate to certain things you saw in a certain way, whether it was race relations in the city or the influence of the politicians in the city or the influence of organized crime in the city or the influence of the university hospitals versus the community hospitals. Knowing the city, you could put everything you did into some sort of perspective, which was valuable. Now I worked for a while in Cleveland and I wasn't there that long, but I could see even my short period of time there that the same thing would happen if you stayed there for a long time. You would understand certain things that you don't understand when you're there for a short time. And some of that you can pick up just by being in the hospital, but others, it would be on you to learn about your community and read and be engaged and. Right, right. You know, I mean, again, and ask people about the community and, you know, I mean, get involved in the community in some sense. And it will help you. First of all, it'll make you a better person and you're a better person, you're gonna be a better doctor. But it's also interesting. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things that are always going on. Okay. My next question for you, since publishing the book, have you come across other stories that you would want to add? I do think of stories that, you know, I didn't put it in there. I've written a couple of them down, say, in case I ever get enough for another book, I would put them in there. One thing I remember is that there was a very prominent pathologist who worked at County for... 40 years. And I worked a little bit as a medical student and I would have people go down to see autopsies and everything. And that was at the very tail end of his career. But his career, he was very prominent in the late 40s, early 50s. And some of the top pathologists in the country, some of the people who founded a medical school in New York worked with him. So this was the center of clinical pathology in the country. But by the end of his career, he was just an old man and there were a bunch of new people and everything like that. And I remember that when he died, there was just a three by five card outside an administration building saying he died. And here was a guy, he was one of the type of people who put Cook County on the map. Now, when you go and you look at a lot of other very famous physicians, famous within the profession, you sort of see the same type of thing because there's a, what have you done for me lately attitude. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I, I'm interested in obituaries and sometimes the obituary editors will ask me, does he merit an obituary in our, in our newspaper? And it falls on you to say, how important was he? And some of these guys who were really important are completely forgotten within a couple of years. So that was a story when I saw that three by five card, I thought about that. I would have put that story in there. And I can think of a couple other stories about how we had elevator operators long after there were, um, you know, automatic elevators because they were patronage people. They worked for the city so or they worked for the county. So, you know, stories like that that I didn't put in there that I would put in there today. I think that elevator story is in your 
in the book because I remember there, reading there's, that. There's one elevator story in there. Okay. Uh, I had one or two others that I would put in today because that was such a fascinating thing. Do you think that you'd still care for a patient like Jeffrey or Mr. Baker today, or would their stories be different based off of what's happening in Chicago? I, yeah, I think everybody's stories would be different today. I think that the doctors are looked at differently. I think that uh, patients look at the doctors differently. I think that the time constraints are different. You'd have less time to explore these things. I mean, Mr. Baker brought a smoked turkey to the hospital every year on Thanksgiving and every morning, I, year on Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving morning, I would meet him at the hospital, get a smoked turkey. I don't think you have as much of that today. I mean, it's much harder to cultivate those relationships. And one of the things that I think I wrote about it in the book, electronic medical records have a lot of benefits, but there are certain downsides to them. And this is one of the downsides. When you had a paper record, if I was talking with somebody in the clinic, I could write what the name of their dog was. And then six months later, you know, when I'm leafing through their record, I would ask them, well, how is Buddy? And of course, they would think that I remembered when I didn't remember, but I'm reading think, but that helps you form a bond. Well, there's no place in the electronic medical record to put the name of their dog. Mm -hmm. So those things are different today. And I think of, you know, very prominent people who, you know, somebody who was a television star in the 50s, but was down on their luck by the, the uh, 90s, and nobody heard them anymore. And, you know, when you when you read about them, you say, this was a nationally prominent person in the 50s, and, and nobody remembers them today. There's a lot of that goes on. We don't get to dig as much as you no, did before. No. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a bad thing about medicine, but it's things change. And that's what, what can you do about that? Mm -hmm. Is your interest in people's stories and still kind of digging into these different things part of what's motivated you to continue to write for the Tribune Absolutely. and that's other? That's actually why I got interested in obituaries when I retired was because a well-written obituary is basically a story. You know, people think of it as the person died of this leukemia, this age, and, you know, and they went to this school or they did this job or this and that. But if you go to well-written obituaries, they are stories about people and there's fascinating things in there about people. And there are fascinating things about the people they knew. And they enrich your life if you know them and they enrich the lives of others if you can tell them. I read... 19 of your articles in preparation for this interview and it seems like no two of them are the same you've written on everything from robot ethics to pioneers of transgender sur surgery baseball and the COVID-19 pandemic so it seems like you're willing to look into anything to get a story and you know as a writer now you don't want to get locked into a very formulaic approach and write about the same thing all the time. Now with COVID, and it's interesting because uh, my writing partner for COVID is a prominent infectious disease physician. And we want to keep the public up to date as much as possible. But, you know, you have to find something to write about. You can't just write about the same thing that we wrote about before or that everybody's saying. So that limits what you can do there. But when I'm not writing that type of stuff, I'm always looking for a different angle on a different type of story. Mm -hmm. And we, you had mentioned this before we started recording too, but you do a lot of work with um, kind of 
sifting information with COVID and conveying that to other people? Well, I will tell you, you know, I'll give you my opinion, is that I have a natural advantage over most people who write about COVID in the sense that I worked 35 years with medical data. And I worked very, very closely with medical data. I mean, logging every patient who came to the intensive care unit, logging every cardiac arrest in the Department of Medicine. So while I'm not a statistician, I am extremely comfortable and familiar with data. And I used to be a baseball fan. And back in the early 80s, there was a very prominent physician at Mass General, and I was out there visiting him. And we spent about three years talking about how medical data is like baseball data and how you analyze it and how you interpret it. So I can do that. I can do the science and I can tell when people are talking nonsense. Mm -hmm. I like to keep track of things and inform when they're giving you nonsense or when they're giving you an opinion that's say too political or, you know, because so many of the COVID opinions are politics and whatever my politics are, when I do this, you want to be as disinterested as possible. Two of the big problems that we, we've had with COVID in the United States are we ignored what went on in other countries. So we're not looking at the data from other countries and the data from other countries is extremely important. And you see falls in cases in places that had very high cases and no one asks why did they fall in those countries? That's very important information. And the other thing is, you know, from a medical standpoint, in the intensive care unit, I was always looking, well, we have a plan, but we have to have a backup plan. And what if this doesn't work? And, and, and you know, for as good as vaccines are, we didn't have any backup plan of other things that we would do. And when vaccines weren't perfect and the vaccines aren't perfect, so, and you should get vaccinated, you should get boosted, but we didn't have enough of a plan. And now that's catching up with us in terms of rapid testing and in terms of new drugs and everything like that. So I like to think that besides being able to look at data, I can analyze this from a medical standpoint that most non-medical writers can't, and I can be disinterested in a way that a lot of the medical writers can't. And it seems like that disinterest is kind of what we maybe more traditionally have honored as what journalism should be, right? Instead of having the leaning a specific way or the other politically. I mean, a couple of my pieces for the Tribune, and they had a, a different op-ed editor when I was writing in the first year. If I wrote anything that you could even construe in some way, shape, or form as being positive about Donald Trump, even though I didn't say anything that's even close to that, well, that piece would get kicked. If I said, well, deaths are dropping and well, you know, you're saying, no, I'm not. I'm just saying deaths are dropping and that's an objective fact. And we have to figure out why deaths are dropping. And, and so that's very bad. And you see that a lot. You see that in the, in the top newspapers and in the Post and the Times and things like that. You don't want to get in the situation where they're interpreting data in a political way because one, it will skew your analysis and two, it's ultimately, it's generally going to catch up mm -hmm. with you. And then you erode that right. trust. The, the readers, the lay public, and even a lot of doctors, they want you to be as honest and as, as disinterested as possible. Doesn't matter what the politics are. Now, there are po political implications to all this. You can't control that. And you can't completely 
divorce yourself from the politics of it, but you don't want that to creep into your writing. Either way, you know, whether you're a, a liberal or a conservative or progressive or a reactionary, you don't want that to creep into your analysis and into your writing. That's, that's critical, that's crucial, and too many people ignore that mm -hmm. today. Do you have any mentors or particular pieces of writing that have influenced your practice, either in medicine or as a writer? Right. Good question. Excellent question. Well, the medical writers were a little different than the non-medical writers. The non-medical writers, I would say the, the person non-medically influenced me the most was William Sapphire, who was an op-ed writer for the uh, New York Times for many years and was also their language contributor. And he was a very, very good writer. And he was the guy I read and said, how does he do this and everything? A lot of the older sports writers were very good writers in general, not, not just writing about sports, but writing in general. And so non-medically, I used them. Medically, there were a couple of writers that I read to absorb how they approach things. Of course, no one who's a medical writer today should answer that question without answering Sir William Osler because Sir William Osler was the classical writer of the first half of the 20th century. And many people consider him one of the great doctors of the first half of the 20th century. Michael DeBakey, who was the greatest cardiac surgeon of the 20th century was also uh, a very good writer. He had a, his wife was his editor. And maybe the most important person to me was a man whose name is not well known anymore, but, but uh, he was probably the best medical writer that I ever read. His name is William Bean. And he described things like Osler's nodes. He described things like spider angiometa. I'm trying to remember what else he did, but he was just a wonderful writer. He was at the University of Iowa for many years and he was just a superb writer. And if you go back, nobody does it anymore. If you go back to the journals of the 50s, 60s and 70s, when they used to put in medical writing, you'll see his writing and it was absolutely superb. You know, when he described things like uh, spider angiomata and when he, he wrote, you know, sometimes it was humorous, sometimes it was serious, but it was really good stuff. And he was the medical writer, I would say, who influenced me the most, he, Osler, and DeBakey. Mm -hmm. It seems like the very interesting part about William Bean was that he could do it all. It wasn't just one form of writing. And it's going back to what you said about keeping it interesting, even though it is medicine and it's exciting and innovative, he could even mix up how he was presenting the information. Right. He was right. He was a, a, an absolute genius as a writer. And the people who work with him, including my father, said he was a genius as a physician. And I mean, you just don't see guys like that anymore. The University of Iowa is that really strong tradition of, I know, more creative writers because they have a lot of fiction and novel. Forget exactly what the like conferences that people meet for that. There's the Iowa Creative Writers School, which a lot of the best writers in America attended. And you have there, you know, you have in Iowa and in Minnesota, you've got sort of a little nexus of great physicians and great thinkers, you know, in Mayo and in the University of Minnesota, the University of Iowa. So you've got sort of a nexus there. Be 
speaking of influences, we'll flip it. I am told that you were the role model for Harrison Ford in The Fugitive. Tell me more about that. Well, I was sort of, he had a couple of them, but I think I was the main one who taught him to be a doctor. So when the movie people came to me, they needed a technical advisor and they had about three or four physician technical advisors, but I'm the one he hung around a lot. And there are a couple of scenes, you know, he would ask me, what do I say in this situation? How do I react in this situation? And I mean, he was absolutely brilliant that when, you know, when he asked you, plus he would often observe you when you didn't realize that he was watching you. So part of my job was basically to teach him. The one scene that was classic was he's the janitor in the emergency room and he takes the, the young kid's chart and he realizes he has a tension pneumothorax that the doctor's missed and he has to take him up to surgery. So he asked me, well, when I'm in the elevator with the kid, what do I say? And, you know, I said, okay, the kid is going to be scared. He's going to be really worried, doesn't know what's going on. So what you want to do is you want to reassure him his mother will be there soon. And then you want to take his mind away from him as much as possible. Ask him if he plays a sport, does he like uh, baseball or football or whatever. And that will take his mind off it while he's riding the elevator with you. And when he did the scene, uh, after he did the scene, I said, hey, you're better than me. That was great. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and people ask me about that all the time. You know, I got a lot of stories about that. It's a long time ago now. It's almost 30 years, but uh, that was a lot of fun. And so you were approached by the people making the movie because of your connection to County, or how did they find you? There were two things. One was I was friends with the brother of the director who had just made the Steven Seagal movie, uh, whichever one made a lot of money for Seagal on the ship. I can't remember, Under Fire or whatever it was. I don't remember. But the other way was they had known about me from County and they asked me, you know, would I teach Harrison Ford? And I thought they were kidding. But the next day, Harrison Ford shows up in my office. And there's a line of nurses, like two blocks long, who want to use my copy machine when I walk in there, you know? So it was, it was a sort of a serendipity thing, but it was a lot of fun working with him for, I worked with him about six weeks and it was a lot of fun. Do you think that he got some of the lessons with how to interact with people from his acting faster than some of us medical students do? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. He, uh, he observes people. And he understands that. I mean, that's what good actors do. And you realize even when you're having dinner with him, he's watching you and he's listening to you very carefully if, he, if he's going to use you for the role. Absolutely. We could learn a lot from good actors like him. Maybe I'll have to take some acting classes. There are people who do that. And I don't think it's a bad idea. I know there are lawyers who do that. And a lot of what goes on in the, in the uh, courtroom, you know, is basically theatrics. You would do it in a different way in medicine, but it wouldn't hurt to uh, learn some of that. Yeah, if football players are taking ballet, I can suck it up and take an acting class. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, I always felt, by the way, when I was doing intensive care, and when I was doing intensive care, it was just becoming a specialty. It wasn't a specialty when I was a medical student. And so there were people in it who were surgical intensivists and anesthesia intensivists and medical intensivists before pulmonary medicine got into it. And I always felt that everybody who goes into it should spend 
at least some time during the week, maybe a half an afternoon week, doing something else. If you're an anesthesiologist, you should go to the operating room. If you're a surgeon, you should do you know some easy cases or something. If you're medical, you should do a clinic or something like that. That's sort of fallen by the wayside, but I think that's a very important thing to broaden your horizons so that when you come back to the intensive care unit, you, you have perspective. We keep making sports analogies, but that kid that plays more than one sport, it always seems like it right. translates into that, their quote unquote right. main sport, because right. they just see right. other things and movements. Right. That There's a lot can... of stuff you can learn and you often don't realize what you're learning, but there's a lot of stuff you can learn. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting too because I feel like with medicine, not only are you becoming more, we becoming more and more like leaning towards specialties and specializing, but a lot of people are coming from a lot more diverse backgrounds. You have a lot more people from maybe like a more literary background, or they did more gap years where they got different experiences. But then it still feels like we then hyper-focus. So finding ways to keep up with other things besides medicine and talking about like literature and writing and that kind of stuff is also important to think about too. No, Catherine, I'll just tell you one thing that we talk about a lot. I'm friends with a lot of lawyers. My best friend is a lawyer. And I do a lot of work with lawyers because I work a little bit for the state's attorney. And my friends and I talk about, well, who is smarter, doctors or lawyers? And the interesting thing is, you know, if you, if you separate the personality for a second, our answers are pretty close to the same. And the answer is, from when you start your training to your first 10 years, usually doctors are smarter. Usually doctors have to absorb more information and learn more things and this and that. But once you get past that 10 years from your start of your training, Lawyers become smarter. And the reason is, is because the nature of their profession demands that they learn more different things, whereas doctors can very easily just fall into a trap of just learning a very narrow area. You know, and lawyers, they'll get confronted with all sorts of stuff and they'll have to learn about new things all the time. And doctors don't always do that. So that was our answer on that. One of my goals in life, it's kind of a weird one, is to be like a modern day Benjamin Franklin, where I could do science and writing and just think about the world in a bunch of different ways. Read something non-medical every day, Catherine. Just, you know, read your textbooks and read all the stuff, but every day read one thing that's non-medical, even if it's just a newspaper article or a couple of pages in a book or something, read something that's non-medical every day. Well, it's been so nice talking to you. We, we really appreciate that we were able to talk with you about your book and your time writing and everything else. And thank you so much for being on our podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Catherine. It was a real pleasure for me too. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 
If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.